Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we we come to you now, and, and there's a lot happening in the life of our church right now, and I can only imagine, you know, God, there's a lot, hap- a lot, lot happening in each of our individual lives. As valuable as a time like this is, I can imagine how difficult it may be for just the short moments that we're gathered here with God and for to be able to, to really focus on you, to get our minds and our our lives open to what you have to say to us. And so I I pray for just a real, first and foremost, sense of peace in your presence right now. Lord, there's, there's a sense in which we're not asking you to be here. We're just asking for you to help us see that you are. Because you promised to be. As we've worshipped you, we, we know you're here with us in a special way. Maybe some of us need faith to believe that, for that to be more than just a Bible verse. But I pray that God, in, in this time now that we reflect on some truths in your word, we pray, God, that you would make that a reality for us, that you're with us. God, you're here. You love us. And you have good for us. So God, we we invite you to speak to us for the short moment we have left together. Minister to our hearts. Enable me to preach and teach in a way that is helpful and faithful. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I appreciate your patience this morning as we navigated through a handful of exciting things happening in the church, but now is... we do shift gears. We are going to continue what is potentially the second or third to last week in this series that we've been doing in the Gospel of John, specifically chapter 15, that we've entitled, Abide in Me. Abide in Me. Um, these are the, some, some of the final words that Jesus speaks to his followers here in John 15. A little bit of context. The Gospel of John is a biography on the life of Jesus. In chapters 14 through 17 of the Gospel of John, 
specifically contain the final words that Jesus spoke to his followers, his disciples, in preparation for his departure. The Bible says in John 13, right before these words, that Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knew that on the other side of his week was him laying down his life for the sins of the world. And knowing that, the Bible says that he loved his disciples to the very end. This is good news for all of us that Jesus loves us through to the very end. Amen? He doesn't just love us from the start. He loves us through the middle and to the very end. And one of the ways that he's loving his disciples to the very end is he's making sure that they have all that they need to transition to life without him physically next to them, as he was for three years. He's getting them ready for that big switch, for that big transition. It's a big transition. I mean, parents, imagine like sending your kids off to college, that kind of switch, where I'm no longer right physically next to you to, to answer every question you have the same way I have or to give you everything you need the same way I have. There's, there's a shift of faith happening there, and God will often lead us through the same seasons. We're learning to trust him in new and even better ways. And so he's preparing them for that shift. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to also rise and ascend. And the Holy Spirit's going to come. But John 15 is all about how they can navigate that future life. And really the, the secret to it all, you could say, or like the main call that he has for them, the thing that he wants on the forefronts of their minds of, of, of what's needed for a life in my future with Jesus is really this three-word phrase, that they would abide in him. This is the call he gives them. This word abide is used ten times in these verses. I mean, that's a, a lot of reinforcement. Ten times Jesus calls them, and here's really the idea of this poetic language. The word abide means to make your home or to dwell in him. The imagery he's using is that of a vineyard and grapes and a vine dresser, we being the branches, Jesus being the one that we are attached to. And so when Jesus is saying, abide in me, he's calling us to have a life that's marked by deep relationship with him. That Jesus isn't someone that we merely visit on a Sunday or visit in our minds every now and then, but he's a source of our life, a relationship that we live from. We've been talking about this, about his presence, how we live from this awareness of his thereness and everything we do. We live from communion with him. Last week, we went into verse 7, and we talked about the importance of Jesus' words in our relationship with him. We, we established the idea that we, cannot be, we, we can't be serious about God and somehow selective with his words, that we've got to be fully submitted to his words if we're going to abide. Jesus teaches us that, that part of relationship with him looks like abiding in his words. And the result of this, Jesus has taught us, is a life of fruitfulness, which is what every one of us are after, Christian or not. If you're here today and you go, I'm a follower of Jesus, or you're here today and you go, I don't think I'm a follower of Jesus, maybe, like where, wherever you're at. Uh, every person in this room has, has been built within, uh, with this longing in their heart for, for true life. Uh, for the opposite of what Jesus describes, which is that, a life that's marked by withering and dying, like barrenness is the image he uses. We're all created and we're all longing for a life marked by flourishing and fruitfulness. A life marked by the things of God and the kingdom of God and, and all the things that we were made for. And Jesus essentially says that, is, what he says here is that that life is found on the other side of an ongoing relationship with him. 
that, that the degree of your depth of communion with Jesus and his word is going to determine the degree of your life in him and your fruitfulness in him. Now, here's what's interesting about verse 7. Um, like I said, a little bit shorter today. We're just going to look at the second half of this verse. In verse 7 here of John 15, this is what we're going to zero in on this morning. Jesus makes a particular claim, or rather he gives a unique promise about abiding that describes a certain kind of fruitfulness, notice this, to our prayers. This is really interesting. Of course, abiding in him is going to lead to fruitfulness. But here in verse 7, Jesus says that abiding in him is actually going to lead to a greater level of fruitfulness in what we're praying for. This is interesting. Again, let's, not, let's do our best not to edit Jesus here and just read what he has to say. Here's what Jesus says. These are his words. He goes, if you abide in me, make your home in relationship with me, and my words abide in you, you need his words to have relationship with him, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. That's a doozy right there. Jesus seems to communicate that abiding in him is going to lead to fruitfulness and productivity in prayer. So much so that he's like, if you desire it in prayer and you ask for it, he says it pretty simple here, it'll be done. Now, let's establish first and foremost what Jesus is saying about prayer at a base level. Jesus is talking about prayer here, requesting things from God. That's one version of prayer, asking God for something. Jesus is teaching here that prayer, uh, all prayer is, is productive, is what he's saying here. That prayer that's, that's directed at God is actually productive. I shouldn't say all prayer is productive. We're going to talk about that. But that prayer in general is not wasted time. Your prayers aren't wasted words, is another way to say that. Um, there, there's some versions of, of theology today that, that in a healthy view of God's power, sovereignty, and will, has sort of diminished clear teaching in scripture, in scripture about the power of the outcome of, right, of righteous prayer. That, that sort of like removes prayer from the equation altogether, or at least reduces prayer to just kind of like, well, God's going to determine what's going to happen. And so prayer is just kind of like saying hi to God as he does whatever he wants. And, and the Bible doesn't seem to communicate that idea. Like, again, if we're not editing the Bible, if we're just reading it as it comes, and we read it in context, but we read things like James chapter 5, where the younger half-brother of Jesus, kind of maybe even expounding on his, his big brother's words, says this, that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. That prayer's not wasted time. They're not wasted words. That, that, you're, that there's things, listen, that will only happen as you pray for them. That prayer has an outcome. That, that God actually listens to prayer, and he responds to the prayers of his people. And I think there are plenty examples of this in the Old Testament with Moses to the New Testament with the greater Moses and Jesus. But that God answers prayer, that prayer is not wasted time, prayer matters. I like the way that Spurgeon, uh, he conceptualizes prayer. He, he describes prayer as entering the treasure house of God and gathering riches out of an inexhaustible storehouse. So, so the idea here is that through God, we have this like treasure chest of favor and blessing and goodness and riches, but prayer is where I draw on the resources I've been given access to. 
I draw on the favor and the blessing of God to produce an outcome. I think this is consistent with, again, what James is teaching here. That, that the effective prayer of a righteous man, it avails much or it produces much. Or how about this? Real, simple speak. Things happen when the right people start praying the right things. Things happen when the right people start praying the right things. I love that he uses Elijah as an example of this. As someone that we would hold up in like high esteem as someone who you would go, okay, of course God answered Elijah's prayers. Well, he was Elijah. That guy got all his prayers answered. He just had the, the fog, the favor of God in his life. Look at this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I love that. And this could have two meanings. Number one, he had a human nature like us. He was just a guy in need of God. But he was also in God. He was a follower of God. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it didn't rain on the land for three years and six months. And then again he prayed. And the heaven gave rain. And the earth produced its fruit. I love the simplicity of this. And sometimes you have to chalk things up to God's will. I remember, I remember going on a mission trip with a bunch of youth to Nicaragua years ago. And we had all these outreaches planned in the city. And the forecast said that it was going to be dumping rain the whole time for this outreach. And we were all so bummed. So we all, the, the youth got together like, what if we got up early? Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. We're going to be taking this to heart on Easter morning, aren't we? Lord, beautiful weather. And they're like, let's get together and let's pray for it not to rain. And so the, the crew got up in the morning. And I'm telling you, these were fervent, effective prayers. These were prayers that were rooted in, in good motives and all these beautiful things. Um, and then we showed up to the outreach, and it dumped on us, pouring rain. And we ended up ministering to a, a woman under the, one of these overhangs, and we were speaking with her. We were speaking with her about uh, how we were praying this. We were talking about prayer, how sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want, and how we really prayed for rain to come. And she said, that's so funny. In Spanish, we have a translator. She goes, I was praying this morning that it would rain. Because <laughs> it hasn't in a couple weeks. And we actually need it in the community for our crops. And, and it's actually been kind of, and we're like, well, we're the Americans that are going to get on the plane now and go back to our country. <laughs> Here we are. So sometimes there's a mystery to this, isn't there? We trust it to God's sovereign will. Or maybe the moral of the story is that this woman was way more righteous than we were. <laughs> the point of the principle is still true. The right people praying the right things changes things. Prayer produces an outcome. This is what Jesus is saying here, that your prayers matter. And especially in him. Now, before we continue to unpack anything else from this, I think it's worth identifying what could be some problem points with a verse like this. There is all sorts of, I want to say, damage that has been done in the name of God, a view of God as being that which is subservient to our prayer requests. There's an interesting tension to find here. I want to communicate some key things. Because listen, this isn't the first nor is it even in this text, it's not the last time that Jesus makes a promise like this. Here's the basis of the promise that Jesus says to his followers. He says this, ask and you'll what? You'll receive. It's an interesting claim, isn't it? And imagine the God of heaven looking at your life saying, if you ask for it, you'll get it. I almost thought of calling this message, getting what you ask for. Now, you need a little bit more theology around that, don't you? 
I think to help us understand what Jesus is saying here, let's establish a few things. This is sometimes one of the most important things to do when you're trying to understand what the Bible's teaching. It's important to understand what it's not teaching. What is this not saying? I want to talk about three things that Jesus is not intending to communicate about prayer. I want to start by saying that here when Jesus says that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask for things in prayer and you'll get them. Jesus is first and foremost not giving us a formula for how we, in prayer, can get our will done. Here's how you can get your will done in heaven as it is on earth. Jesus isn't giving, here's another way to say this. Jesus here in in John 57 isn't giving people a formula for how they can control God. Here's a formula for how you can control God to get the outcome that you want. Here's how you can get God to serve your will. It's not your will or my will that's at the center of what Jesus is saying here. There is the word desires there, which we're going to talk about, but this is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that this is a formula for how to get God to do whatever you want. In fact, we know Jesus is not saying this because Jesus modeled the opposite. It's even in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus said, in prayer, it tells us this, Luke tells us that when he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, he knelt down and he prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Even in the Lord's Prayer, this is how Jesus models how we should come to God. We should present our requests to him, not as demands that says, hey, I'm bringing you, you said whatever I asked for, I'm going to get, so let me use this formula to get you to do what I want. No, this is not a formula for control. Jesus models the opposite. Uh, Jesus would teach us this about prayer. Prayer is not a practice where I get heaven to align with, with my will. But really, prayer is more about opening up my will to God's. Prayer is more about trying to align myself with the purposes and the prerogatives of the kingdom of God. It's not God doing my will, it's getting me to further do God's will. That would be the first thing I would submit about this verse. Uh, another idea that I don't believe this verse is communicating is, is it not, not only is this not a formula for your will to, to be uh, overcome and accomplished over God's, nor is this a, 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 a scripture that is teaching in some way that your prayer requests are the results of your merit. Like here's, if you do these things, you'll get your prayer answered. You'll work. I, I still clear as day can remember a conversation that I had when my mom was deep into her battle with cancer. I was a new believer, about 20 years old, heart for God, wanting to make sense of God, and really wanting to be faithful in suffering. Watching, there's no, no greater suffering than seeing someone you really love suffer. And one of my buddies came to come encourage me, and um, he brought a friend with him. It's like, be careful when you just bring your friend with you, you know, to something like that. And I would have, if I knew if he was coming, I'd be like, don't bring that friend, okay? I didn't really know this guy too well. He was also very zealous, and I was pretty impressionable, impressionable at that age. He was a bit older than me. And I remember sitting with them. I remember this day I was sitting at Jack's Hamburger House in Pompano. And I remember this guy looking across from me and telling me, listen, if you want your mom to be healed, you need to believe that she will. And maybe the reason why she's not being healed is you're not having enough faith that God can heal her. I remember going, what do I do with that? 
I was trying to muster any bit of faithfulness and faith. I mean, give me all the things to do. If I have some power in and of myself to, to heal my mom, trust me, I would seek it. I would do it. And this is a good reminder that, like, the devil knows the Bible. One of the main ways that he sought to trip Jesus up was by quoting the Bible to Jesus. And I've seen all sorts of people lose faith in God. Listen, not because God failed them, but because their formula failed them. Their works-based formula that leads to all sorts of confusion. Jesus is not the author of confusion. He's not going to confuse you in your suffering and cause you to go, well, if I, was, was I not ab- did this happen because I wasn't abiding enough? This works-based, work-centered idea? Rather than understanding that prayer is really just children coming to their father by grace, receiving whatever the father knows they can receive at the time they ask for it. So when we come to God in prayer, Jesus is not teaching, come centered around your will. This is not a formula to control God. Nor is this a formula to earn God's blessing through rule keeping. Like, okay, this is why I'm not getting my prayers answered. I've been praying for that job, but I need to abide more. You know what I'm saying? It's like, how do I do that, right? Like, I've been praying, I've been fat. Like, don't get this into a works-based thing that Jesus is obviously not communicating. And just be reminded, too, that fruit is not birthed through works. It's not birthed through merit. And lastly, let's close with this kind of obvious one that Jesus is not saying. Jesus also isn't saying that if you pray this way, you'll get what you ask for, especially if you center your prayer requests around your wants. Let's go back to this verse. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. You shall ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. I'm so glad you say that, Jesus. Let's talk about some of the things I want. Let's talk about some of the desires I have. And, and this can get, there's a spectrum of desire here that goes all the way from ridiculous materialistic obsessions. There's greeds rather than needs all the way over here. And I know there's a, there's a difficult space in between where you're trying to wrestle with, like, what I'm praying for, I, don't, I think it's more than a want. I'm try, you ever been there where you're like, God, is this a want or a need? You know my needs. I'm going to trust you. So sometimes this is tough. But I, I want to speak for a second to like the obvious thing that we should all learn about this, that God is not subservient to our wants, to our materialistic, selfish wants. In fact, James, again, the younger brother of Jesus, here's just what the Bible says in James chapter 4, says this, that sometimes you ask, but you don't receive, because you're asking amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You're, you're bringing your wants to the center stage of your prayer life, and that may be why, why you're missing the answer you're looking for. By the way, we see this in the life of Jesus all the time. Like, Jesus clearly cannot be saying that you will get whatever you ask for if, on multiple occasions, his disciples came to him with all sorts of big ask questions, okay? I did not intend for that to almost sound inappropriate, I promise, okay? They came to him and they asked all sorts of things. Jesus, can we sit on your right and left hand? Can we get that, that seat of honor? Ask and you shall receive. What about when those guys didn't permit them access to that town? They're like, Lord, can we do me a favor, Lord? Is there a way that you could somehow get us like this spiritual flamethrower from like harness the power of the sun like the Death Star and like we can, in your own way, and we could torch these people literally, bring down fire from heaven on them? That's what they asked for. He's like, you yeah, know, we're not, that's not on the agenda today. Like, let me check the ministry agenda. Burning people alive. No, that's not on the agenda. We're not going to do that today. Okay. 
Ask and you shall receive, right? And again, a lot of this is trusting God's responses to his perfect wisdom. I love C.S. Lewis kind of conceptualizes this when he talks about the, the brief moment that a pilot has to throw up a prayer request for God to save him as he's, his plane may be going down. Mayday, mayday. And he's going, God, save me, save me. Now, in that moment, in time, the pilot's going, God, you have 10 seconds to answer this prayer. But we're reminded, God is, C.S. Lewis says, God isn't bound by time. He's not bound by 10 seconds. He's all of, he is all of eternity. The eternity of his wisdom and knowledge to determine how he's going to act in real time. We can't even begin to fathom how those two realities work together. But we trust, we trust that he knows what he's doing. Now, this is what Jesus is not communicating. This is what we want to center around. I'm submitting this to you. I don't believe that when Jesus says in John 15 that if you abide in my words, my words abide in you, you'll ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. I don't believe Jesus is saying that if you, if you ask him to accomplish your will, he'll do it. I don't believe that he's saying here's the formula for, to get God's blessing, nor do I believe he's saying that whatever you ask for, you're going to receive. Scripture seems to contradict that. Instead, what Jesus is teaching here is that when his words, his words, here's the key idea. Notice the, the, the first word in this verse, if. That's a big if. This is a conditional thing. If you abide in me, and if my words abide in you. Something about his words playing a part in my prayers. If that happens, notice what he says, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Jesus is, is teaching something pretty revolutionary. Here's a way to understand this. I wrote it down this way. I'll just read it. If our prayers are centered around our will, our works, and our wants, we shouldn't expect to receive anything from God. But if our prayers are formed by the words of Jesus, in other words, here's what Jesus is communicating. If we begin to ask for what Jesus' words lead us to pray for, we should expect to receive everything we ask for. This is an interesting concept. If our prayers are centered around our will, our works, and our wants, we shouldn't expect to receive anything from God. But if our prayers are formed by the words of Jesus, we should expect to receive whatever we ask for. Well, that's, that's interesting. That we would have, Jesus teaches, a certain level of expectancy in prayer. When I come to him praying as he's taught me to. Now, where has he done that? Let's look at one final verse here, and I recognize the time, so I'll wrap us out here. If you want to look at this last section with me, if you could just, here's my big prayer request and ask of you. Give me 10 more minutes of your focus, and I promise it'll be well worth it. In Luke 11, Jesus gives an example of how we should pray. In fact, this is probably the best place to allow Jesus' words to form what we ask for. Because without the words of Jesus leading my prayer requests, we're, just, we're led in all sorts of different directions of answered prayer and disappointment and trying to make sense of it all. And, and there is still a lot of mystery and question in this. But at least as a starting point, I love Luke chapter 11. It came to pass as he was praying in a certain place that when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Now a lot has been said about this, how the disciples, they, they've seen the power of the way Jesus prays. And much like everything else he does, it's different than any other rabbi or religious leader at the time. 
He's preaching different. He's living different. And the disciples are noticing that like, there's something about what Jesus is praying for and the effect that it's having on his life that his disciples are like, Lord, teach us to figure that out. If we can pray like you, we can live like you. If we can pray like you, if we pray the things you're praying for, for the reasons you're praying for them, I think we'll be in a better spot. And I love the observation here that they, they could have asked Jesus to teach them all sorts of things. You know, Lord, teach us to, teach us to do the thing where if our, if our dead brother dies, we could just bring him back to life, you know, if, you know, if we feel like it, if he was good to us that day, right? Or Lord, teach us to walk on water barefoot. That's a cool party trick. Lord, teach us to f- go fishing to pay our taxes because there's money in the mouths of the fish we catch. Lord, teach us, like, you just fill in the blank, all the things they could have asked for. Teach us to preach, teach us to prophesy, teach us to lead. Jesus, teach us how to like serve a roast to the Pharisees like you do, because there's just no one that can do it like you. The way that you're able to snap back at them with such tact. No, no, they, they narrowed everything in his life down to the power that came from the way he prayed. Like, Lord, we're your students, and we don't know how to pray as we ought to. So there's got to be an admission here, right? And I think if we're all honest, we could all admit this, that none of us are masters of prayer. We all struggle in prayer to some degree. We all struggle to do it. We all struggle how to do it. There's so many versions of this, probably because of how valuable it is. That's why there's such a struggle often there. So Jesus teaches them. He says, when you pray, and the first thing he establishes is, is know who you're speaking to. You're speaking to your Father in heaven. You come before God. And, and then goes on. Jesus goes on to give this thematic prayer that should form what we pray for. He says, you go before your Father in heaven. You say, hallowed be your name. Your name be set apart as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. You see Jesus getting us to center around God's will before we bring any of our requests to him. Whatever you want, I trust your will and your goodness. I invite it, though, into this broken world to be advanced. God, would you give us day by day our daily bread? And forgive us our sins, for we also, it's the hardest part of the prayer to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I just want to say, for me personally, I've experienced a new depth of connection and even like excitement in prayer. Sometimes the problem with prayer is we lose our passion for it. We, we, we show up enough to where we're, we're just kind of here again and we're clocking in. And, and I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes I just need to go back to the scripture and just start from scratch. And so uh, I've been walking more lately, <laughs> compelled to do that. And on my walks with Jesus, I have been personally just praying the Lord's Prayer. Not religiously, like if I say it, you know, again, like a formula, if I say it 12 times, then I'll get my prayers answered, you know. But just thematically, I come before a Father, and I just start to meditate on it. You're my Father in heaven. And it's amazing. I just want to say that as, as I have been bringing the words of Jesus to Jesus, I have been seeing Jesus answer my prayers. This is what makes prayer fun, by the way. Not only your prayer requests, but God's answer, and you're watching for it. He did it. That's what I prayed for. And Jesus gives us a little guide. The Lord's Prayer is, is, again, it's not meant to be this religious, like, recite a thing over and over again to get God to do what you want. It's meant to be a theme to guide your prayers. And, And again, I believe what Jesus is giving us here is he's giving us things to ask for that we can expect 
God to give us. This is not carrot on the stick stuff. Like, just say, give us this day our daily bread just so you can just like get it to God and, and maybe he'll hear you. No. This, I believe, is what Jesus is saying. When he's like, if you abide in me and my words about how you should pray abide in you, you'll ask for this stuff and you'll see God respond. And we don't have time, obviously. We all know we don't have time. But we don't have time to get into the depths of this. But write these three things down as a summary of what Jesus leads us to pray about. In the Lord's Prayer, he leads us to pray for God's daily provision for my needs. He leads us to pray for God to forgive my sin. And he leads us to pray that that God would preserve my life spiritually. God, would you provide for me what you know I need? Would you pardon my iniquity that you know is there? And would you preserve me from evil? Keep me from evil. Keep me in your will. Keep me in what's good. I want to challenge you to begin to pray the Lord's Prayer with these focuses. And watch for God's answer. Watch what happens when you begin to pray. Listen, not just for what you want, but when you begin to pray, Lord, I wake up today. Here's a great prayer to pray every day of your week this week. You start your day and you go, God, give us this day your daily bread. You know what that means? Lord, I'm waking up today and I'm saying, God, would you give me what you know I need today? Good morning, Lord. I got a day ahead of me. I have no idea what's going to be in this day, who's going to be in this day. I hope they call out sick today, Lord. God, would you give me what I need, what you know I need for this day? That's the idea of daily bread. In that culture, you lived off of a daily wage. And they really knew in that time what it was like to trust God for your daily meal. We don't really know what that's like as much. But in general, this is saying, God, provide for me what you, provide what you know I need today. And not just circumstantially. You tell me that if I ask for your Holy Spirit, I can expect to receive your Holy Spirit. I pray you'd pour out your Holy Spirit on my life today. And I'm going to expect that you're going to supply what I need in you. Pour out your love on me today. Pour out your peace on me. Like, what if those started to become the things that we asked and expected to receive? I ask for your peace and your grace. God, I ask that you would provide for me what I need today and help me trust that you will. You know, sometimes when we pray for our daily bread, here's how I thought of it. Sometimes we pray for our daily bread and we're expecting God to bring us a sourdough loaf fresh out the oven, Zach the Baker style. And we end up with a breadstick from Olive Garden. (laughs) Lord, I pray for my daily bread. I didn't, and someone's over there and they got like a saltine cracker. They're like, that's a nice breast stick. How many of us know sometimes there's saltine seasons with Jesus? You know what I mean? And you're like, okay, Lord, my daily bread. And I trust that as I seek you, just as you dress the flowers of the field, just as you feed the birds of the air, that I can seek you first and trust that you're going to take care of me. That I can be content because I already have the greatest wealth, which is a relationship with you. And my life is in your hands, so I can trust you to provide all my needs according to your riches. And I don't have to be disappointed when I have the saltine and they have the breadstick. Because there's going to be times where 
It's going to be the other way around, and I'm going to learn to be content each and every season. Amen? That's an important thing to consider. God, provide for me what I need today and help me trust you with what I have. It can be really easy to be living from those, and, and, and especially you get discouraged in your prayers when you're living from not enough, not enough, not enough. I need more. I need this. So. Every day, pray for God's pardon and expect that he will forgive you of your sin. Isn't that a, like a good thing to know that if you ask, you will receive? Anybody else sin? Am I the only sinner in here? Am I the only guy that gets, gets mad at his kids? And I have to be like, oh, they need the fear of God sometimes, you know. And Brittany's like, no, that's not what that was. That was sin. There's times where it's just healthy to be on your face before the Lord, aware of who you're not. And just bring your sin to him and just confess that. There's something that, that will do to your heart, too, when you're just regularly in that posture of repentance. But here's, the, here's why you can do that. Because of God's character and the cross. Amen? You can ask for forgiveness and expect to receive forgiveness. Maybe today you're like new to relationship with God. You're what you're like. Ah, I know He forgives those church people sins. Like, oh what? Like you came to church late. Like, oh He'll forgive you. You go, but I've done like real sins. And I want to just remind you that the Bible teaches this principle that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That sin is sin. Sin is a life separate from the life of God. Decisions that we do that are out of line with His will for our created purposes. So here's a good news. Here's good news for all of us. I love Psalm 86.5. This is like my new favorite verse. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. I am not like that. Anybody else? You've wronged me. I'm so, I'm so glad you got on my bad side today because I'm just ready to forgive. I woke up today. I just said, I'm ready to forgive everyone today, Lord. This is just so not naturally who we are, but this is who God is. He's not reluctant to forgive. He's ready to forgive. He's, he's excited to forgive your sin and your iniquity. He's abundant in mercy. And remember, it's not just his character, it's the cross. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. You see, the cross is the expression and it's the payment for our sin where Jesus hung and died and bled for you and I to be pardoned, forgiven of our iniquity and sin. The cross is the place in which Jesus actually stands in the place of the sinner so that we who stand in the place of sinner can stand and live in the place of righteous. That's the invitation of the gospel, to see your sin upon your Savior and see it removed from you, to see God's forgiveness flow into your life to all who call. And then lastly, this word of preservation. That God, when I ask you for what I need, I'm going to believe that I'm going to receive what I need for you and help me trust that. When I ask for your forgiveness, I'm going to expect that if I confess my sin to you, you are faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness through your son Jesus. And God, I ask that you would keep my life in you because God, I'm not good at that. I'm not good at keeping my life away from that which leads me astray. 
I'm not good at keeping my mind focused on you. So God, would you center my life in relationship with you? Begin to pray that. If, that, if that's your desire, if you're here today, you're like, I'm struggling to follow Jesus. Maybe your prayer is just going, God, keep me in line with you. Begin to ask him to preserve your life, to keep you from the evil one. And if you ask him, here's the good news, you will receive. He will answer that prayer.